Our reading this afternoon is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through to 19. But goodliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Jesus Christ, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honour and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Leadership in the world. Son of man didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's still the title of the third talk, the subtitle there. We've been warned already, or I've warned you already, that there is a great conflict between the view of the world held by Christians and the view of the world held by non-Christians. You remember Romans chapter 12 where Paul says in the opening verses of Romans 12, let me just get it to read it accurately. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that's what we're engaged in this day. Over and over again, day in, day out, morning, noon and night, we are being conformed to the world. The, the advertising, just, just to know the number of thousands of advertisements you see, consciously and even worse, unconsciously, all the time. And it's not so much that you've got the product they want you to buy, 
It's the subtext message that is always there. If you buy this, you'll be happy. If you own this, you'll be satisfied. Your life won't be worthwhile until you get that. It doesn't matter what the product is, fill in X, Y, Z. That, that's an irrelevance. It's the sense of materialism that is in our air. It's in our... It, it's, the, it's the air we breathe in Australia is materialism. And so just for a little while, one day, we take out, well done, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad that you're here to take a day out to actually group with a group of Christian men and try and think in ways that the world does not think so that we can be renewed by the mind. That's where it happens. Renewed by the mind that leads to a transformed life. And so, yeah, it is hard work listening and especially listening to my old voice rattling on hour after hour after hour. But yet, it's in the word of God that our minds are changed and our lives are changed. And when so, we will be quite different to the world. I've finally got an image which I think is working. I'm using it more and more and uh, I'm happy to hear what's wrong with it before I go all around the world promoting it completely. But I've got an image to understand our world. It's cut flowers. They're something you should take home to your lady. It's cut flowers. Our culture is the culture of cut flowers. Our lives are the lives of cut flowers. That is, when you cut a flower and stick it in a vase, it can open up and be a beautiful bloom and give wonderful scent and fragrance throughout the whole room. If you leave it there long enough, of course, the petals fall off but it slowly stinks the water out and, the, and so the very kind of thing that gave beautiful perfume also gives the stench of death in it. That's life. We're cut flowers. Because we were told the day in which you eat of this, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And you say, but he didn't die. He kept on living, had kids, but he did die. The day he ate of the fruit, he died. Because that was the day he was cut. And a cut flower is a dead flower. It still may bloom, it still may show wonderful, it may give you lovely flavour, lovely scent, but it's actually dead. And the death will be seen in due time. And that's what we are like, that's what humanity is like, that's what our culture is like. There are all kinds of things that bloom beautiful, but you know it's dying. So, you know, you, you reach your magnificent peak at 21, You'll never be able to be like that again. You can't jump as high, run as high, run as fast. You can't catch as ball. Your reflexes, from there on in, 21, some of you might make it 22. Yeah, from there on in, just a low slide downhill until you're the subject that you can't catch a ball, you can't run anymore, you can't hear anymore, you can't see anymore, you're just dying because we are all dying flowers because we've been cut right back at the time of Adam. And so we have in our society the foolishness of idolatry, that we are ever pandering to the, to the young and to the beautiful and to the visions of what wonderful things there are, rather than face the reality that we're all dying. See, sickness is normality. Health is abnormal. Hands up those who have in the last week, taken any form of medication. There you are. <laughs> All right. Hands up those who didn't in this last week. Your hands go up a lot quicker because they're younger. 
there's a couple of blokes who are still trying to answer the first question. <laughs> Health is abnormal. Sickness is normality in this world because we're, we're dying creatures. We're cut flowers. But yet we think that health is normality and I'm just sick for a little while, but I'll get back there. But you don't get back there. You do when you're under 20. But when you get old, you, don't get, you never get back to where you were. You get back to an approximation of where you were, an approximation. And we live in the foolishness of this world. But the cultures around us and the society around us and life itself is so magnificent that we get conned into thinking it's what life is about. That they know that this is right and it's not. Every culture is an expression of a cut flower. Beautifully arranged in a wonderful vase giving out marvellous perfume. But dead and deadly. Don't be deceived. So you take a word like submission... It's how the world works. It's the kind of social capital that is essential for everything. Police, policing, courts, judgment, economy, schools, family. Everyone requires it. And it's how the world works. And we live in Australia. And boy, the social capital is fantastic in Australia. Unlike Syria, where there's no social capital left. Or unlike, you know, just name the country, Australia lives with a magnificent bank full of social capital by which things really do work very well in this country, which is fantastic. And so you therefore think that this country's got its act together, which is nonsense, because our country hasn't got the faintest clue how to live, because they're living in opposition to God. And so you get a subject like submission and they all go to water and say, oh, no, no, we don't believe in submission. We don't believe in submission. We, we practice it all day, every day, in all kinds of circumstances, situations, but it's an evil. You mustn't ask anybody to submit to somebody else, which is a complete nonsense. It's a poppycock. See, our confusion is over our Christian and non-Christian world because we live in overlapping worlds. They're overlapping in a couple of ways. They're overlapping in the sense that... We in Australia have a Christian heritage, but we're now part of the Western Enlightenment world that rejects that heritage. And so there's all kinds of good things in Australia that flow from our Christian heritage, but they're kind of being forgotten, as there's all kinds of other things that deny that Christian heritage but still live off the benefits that the Christian heritage gave us. I asked the other day, I asked somebody, and they were going to check on Google, but they haven't for me, but I'll say it now just in case I'm wrong, check it out later and change the name. But who can tell me anything about Latrobe? Because you've got a Latrobe University just over the river, haven't you? And who, can, who knows anything about Mr Latrobe? He was a governor, first governor of Victoria. Anything else? He was a soldier? I think he was, was he? But he might have been. Most of the governors were in those days, but I think he wasn't. But then again, I might be wrong. He was a Bible-believing Christian who established the social capital of Victoria. 
who established Melbourne University, who established the the, uh, the, the library, who established, who, who laid out, he was the man who brought society, civilization, and culture into the money grubbers down there. They were money grubbers. They're Australians. Yeah? That's what we are, right? But he was the man of civilization. But he was an evangelical Bible believer. He's a group of Bible believing men who don't know that thing about that man. You see how our history is being taught to us? Someone better Google and check that I'm right there. <laughs> I think I read it about two or three weeks ago about the history of Latrobe, but my memory can't be trusted on short-term things. So, but there are many, many people who stood behind the development of our nation as Christians, Bible-believing Christians, intentionally bringing Christian values into our society. We have the benefit of it, but we also now live in a world that senses it out of existence. It doesn't, and so they make sense of our world without Christ, which, of course, you can't ultimately make sense of our world without Christ. So we live in this overlap, which is very confusing for us, and we are being de-Christianised all the time and so pushed to the margins of our society more and more. But there's another overlap we live in. We live in this world, but we also live in the world to come. It's not that I'm going to heaven when I die. I'm already in heaven, um, hanging around with you guys. You might have thought heaven might be nicer than hanging around with you guys, but yeah, that's because you're still in the sinful part of your heavenly existence, but you see, it taught in Ephesians chapter 2 that we have been raised up with Christ to sit in the heavenly places. Not we will be. You see, will be is future, have been is past, isn't it? A verb has different tenses. It's very hard, isn't it, to explain these things. It's what has already happened to us in Christ. So if you're born again... You are already spiritually in heaven while you are physically in earth. And so we're in an overlapping world in our... And that creates confusion and tensions even within us. So our flesh wages war with our spirit, as it puts in Galatians 6. Many a Christian says, will say, you know, how can I be a Christian and battle with sin? And I say, how can you be a Christian and not battle with sin? I mean, so if, if you're a Christian who's not battling with sin, either you're not a Christian or you're dead. There's your option. As long as you're alive in this world, you're supposed to be battling. When you give up battling, now that's a problem. But that you're battling is a good sign of spiritual health. You say, yeah, well, I'd like to win more of the battles. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't we all, right? <laughs> But we battle because we have been born again by the gracious mercy of God. And so we are already spiritually. Now, you see it in the problem with the word secular. I use this one because I know the uh, education, SRE kind of background is part of this problem. The word secular is an old 13th century word which means of this age, of the now, of the here, the here and now. That's all it means. In the 19th century, a group of atheists started to develop a different word that comes out of it called secularism. Secularism means there is no other age. Now, the two words overlap but mean quite different things. Secularism is atheism. It's the denial of any other age than this age. 
but secular just means of this age as opposed to the other age. And so we have a secular government, but not a secularist government. We have a government that is only involved in ruling in the affairs of this age. They make no governmental decisions about the heaven, about religion. It's only about roads and streets and hospitals and, and, and you know, the things of this age. Likewise, we had secular education. Secular education was to be educated about this age, about this world. But the secularists, they want to have an education which denies the other world. And they use the word secular to slip in atheism under the vise of secularism, secularist. In Roman Catholicism, of which I know you all uh, ardent uh, followers and believers, in Roman Catholicism, uh, they have secular priests. How can you have a secular priest? Well, you couldn't have a secularist priest. That would be a complete nonsense. But you can have a secular priest because they're the priest who is in the world as opposed to the, sec the, the priest who's in the monastery. See, the monastery is a religious life only. Whereas the parish priest, he's out in the world. So he's a secular priest as opposed to the sacred priest. Right? That's the difference. And the word shift, the word game here, is an important one because a lot of our legislation uses the word secular to mean, see, a Christian, Christianity is very secular, much more secular than uh, Hinduism or Buddhism. Because in Hinduism and Buddhism, you've got to leave the world and go into meditation, empty your mind and just experience the om. Whereas within Christianity, God has created this world for us to be responsible, to care for, to look after, to nourish, to enjoy, to eat and to have marriage. And, and people who deny the created order are actually doing the work of the devil. So Christianity is a very secular religion because it is very concerned about this age, not just about the age to come. While at the same time we are concerned about the age to come. For us it's a both and, not an either or. For the, the Hindu-Buddhist framework of mind, it's the other world. Whereas for the secularist atheist, it's this world only. But we believe in the creator of the creation. Therefore, for us, it's both worlds. The age to come, I'm already in, thanks to regeneration by the Spirit of God. And this age, I'm already in, thanks to my mother and father, who brought me into birth in this world, under the kindness of God. Now... The godless cut flower world is a world today of individualism, power, materialism, money, hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure. That is, when you get rid of God, all there is is this world. If all there is is this world, then this world is an accident. If this world is an accident, you're an accident. One of the things about accidents is they don't have any meaning, do they? That's why they're called accidents. They just happened. And you're just a happening. That's all you are. It happened and one day you're going to stop happening. And that's life. That's all it's about. There's no justice. There's no morality. There's no truth. There's no... It just, you just is. I am because I am. That's why I am because I am. And so 
with a world of secularist materialism, what should I do? Well, I should make my grey cells as happy as they can. How do I do that? Well, drugs will do it. Uh, alcohol will blot out the, the unhappy bits until I block out completely. Um, you know, food will do it, drink will do it, um, sex will do it, uh, whatever, whatever makes me happy. That's what I'll do. And if, if being nice to you will make you nice to me and that will make me happy, I'll be nice to you. But if being nice to you is not going to make me happy, well, get lost. I don't care about you. I just function all the time to maximise my happiness. And so utilitarian philosophy, if you want to put it that, is the maximisation of happiness. Some, because they've got the Christian heritage, want to do the maximisation of the greatest number of people to be happy. But some who have denied God, I've moved from J.S. Mill into the kind of, the Nietzsche kind of denial of God, God's dead, there is no God, then I don't care whether you're happy or not. It's got nothing to do with the maximisation of the greatest number of people having happiness. All that matters is I do what I want to do. And that, of course, works itself out in its most hideous historical form in Nazism, of course. But that's the world we live in. That's the world view. They keep on appealing to morality because of the Christian heritage and because they can get people to do things if you've got morality. You know, it's not fair, it's not just. It's a great way of manipulating people into doing things. But they don't actually believe there is morality. There is no morality. There's just whatever you want to do. They try and create morality, but no one can actually come up with it. I mean, one of the troubles with the ethics class is there's no ethics in this world. What an ethics class that's really honest tells you is that there is no basis for ethics. And so we have laws, rules, justice, but it's all got to do with imposing social engineering on our community. You'll see it sometimes that people want all children to go to public education because public education is the mechanism by which we can hold our society together. I thought the aim of public education was to teach children to think. I thought it had something to do with education. But it's not. It's got to do with social control. That's, that's what it's about. And everybody has to go through the same process so that we can control our society. Uh, some of the laws that are passed on utilitarian arguments are laws about harm minimisation. So we, we give out uh, needles to drug addicts so as to minimise the harm. That still might be a right thing to do. I'm not denying that's a good social policy or I'm not advocating as a social policy. I'm just pointing out the rationale is harm minimisation because we can't deal with right and wrong, just and true. I was up late at night watching television one night and it was September the 9th and the planes crashed into there and so I saw it happening while it was happening live on our television. And the commentators were struggling to describe what was happening. They were all in a panic. And in the end, I heard something that I thought I'd never hear on television. It was an astonishing thing. The, the, the commentators said, it's, 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 it's evil. Now, that's a word you don't hear on television. Evil. You can't hear it because that requires you to have an absolute morality. It wasn't antisocial. He had to call it for what it was, <laughs> evil. But that's a, you see, that's the Christian word. <laughs> that's, a, that's part of the culture hanging over from their our heritage. They soon got over it. It was the government's fault.
There's the godless world. The God's world actually comes from a whole different way. We, build in, we, we start with relationships, with God creating us and creating us to be in his image and creating us male and female so that we will be in sexual union reproducing, reproducing so that there will be one humanity. Of course, it's not Adam is in the image of God and Eve wasn't, or Eve is in the image of God and Adam wasn't. It was they together are in the image of God because there's one image of God, namely, ultimately, Christ and his church. That actually, we are in the image of God as, as, as one humanity. God did not want two humanities, but one humanity, united together and reproducing. And as each generation leaves father and mother and joins together with their spouse, so they reproduce and the network gets bigger and bigger and bigger, but then death keeps on breaking in and cutting at it and cutting at it. But as we keep reproducing, so it still grows, even though the top layers are dying and then the next layer is dying and the next layer is dying. When we get to heaven in our resurrection bodies, there is no death. And so there no longer is any marriage. But that's another day. In this world, we continue in that unity. And so our laws and our justice, our righteousness, etc., flow out of relationship, out of the love of our Creator and our relationship with Him, out of grace and mercy and forgiveness, which are all over and above what is required by rules and regulations and justice. In fact, without evil, you can, without sin, you can have no forgiveness. Well, that's not right. You've already sinned enough that you don't have to go and do sin more so as to get more forgiveness. But when you say everything is all right, then nothing is wrong, then there is no forgiveness. Acceptance is not forgiveness. Acceptance is accepting people sinful as they are. Forgiveness is accepting people in repentance because the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ has paid for them. It's a different concept altogether. And so in God's world, everything is different. Our relationships are fundamental and our relationships are quite different. But what about money and wealth? Well, the creation is good. Come with me to that passage, 1 Timothy. We were reading 1 Timothy 6. Go back and look at just too early as earlier, 1 Timothy 4. Now, 1 Timothy 4, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This created world is a good world. We mustn't withdraw from it. See, the Hare Krishnas, they say this world is maya, M-A-Y-A, that is illusion. A seductive illusion that is trying to seduce you away from your ultimate spiritual reality. And so what you've got to do is repress and suppress any physical pleasures, any physical delights, because the world itself is a seduction of the devil, trying to stop you from being the true spiritual being that you are. That's the doctrine of the demons. <laughs> that, that's, not, that's why they eat that dreadful food of theirs, and wear those awful clothes, and sing that 
unimaginable music. Right? It's all got to do with freeing your body from your soul, rather, from the bodily existence that it's in. And it, it's, it's the opposite of what is being said in the Bible. God has created this world as a good world for us to enjoy. And it is. And that's part of the problem with Australia. It's so good, isn't it? It's so rich. It's so plentiful. It's so easy. It's so hard to believe in something better. But there comes our problem. So on one side you've got the people who reject the creation and the other problem is in chapter 6 where people love money. There's great gain in godliness with contentment for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we, if we have food and clothing with these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into snare, into many useless and harm, and many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. See, the love of money is a great evil. And as Christian brothers, we can't love money. Because remember the Lord Jesus Christ said, you can't serve two masters. You'll love the one, hate the other, hate the one, love the other. You can't serve God and money. Can't do it. Just an incompatibility. So God has created the wealth. He owns the wealth. All the silver is his. All the gold is his. There's nothing wrong with the money. But we to use it without loving it. We're to have it and to enjoy it, but not worship it, not pursue it. That delicate balance is really important. To use wealth for good. So we see the rich in verse 17 of chapter 6, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future as they may take hold of that which is truly life. So he doesn't say to the rich, give away all your money and become poor. Because who's he going to give it to? This is the problem of the rich young ruler when people don't realise, don't take the Bible seriously enough. You know, he's got to give away all his money to the poor, come follow Jesus, he'll have eternal life. That means the poor man doesn't have it. Because he's got all the money, hasn't he? So he's got to give it to someone else, hasn't he? Because then he gets eternal life. And he gives it to someone else so that he gets eternal life. And when the Lord Jesus, whoever's holding the money, loses eternal life, you see? It's kind of like a reverse musical chairs, a musical money thing. There's nothing wrong with the money. There's something wrong with the heart that desires it. It's not money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money which is the root of all evil. That difference is as big as all outdoors. Yet you'll hear non-Christians misquote the Bible over and over again saying money is the root of all evil. When it's the love of. And so the rich person... God's given them their wealth to enjoy. Isn't that wonderful? Aren't you glad for them? You should be. <laughs> be glad for them. Rejoice and be glad for them. But in part of that giving the money to them to enjoy, one of the great joys is to be able to give some to others in need. See the word joy is spelled J-O-Y. Jesus, others, yourself. You change the order of the letters and it doesn't spell joy. Wodge, oidge, 
It just doesn't work, right? Dyslexics never get joy. You've got to keep it as Jesus, others, yourself. That's the way... Oh, that's politically incorrect, isn't it? Very naughty. If my daughter is listening to this, she shouldn't be. It's a men's convention. Uh, joy, you see, is Jesus, others, yourself. So the rich Christian will get joy in giving and helping. And God has given them the wherewithal to do... Brothers, we're all rich. I mean, no one's ever rich because you always know someone who's richer, don't you? And so therefore I'm not rich because I'm not like him. I don't have as much as... In the history of mankind, there's hardly any group of people richer than the group of people sitting in this room right now. And across not just the history of mankind, but across the world today, we, we are some of the richest people in the world. That gives us heavy responsibility because to those who are given much, much will be required. And we should be looking at how to give with the money that we're given. It should be a high priority. Remember the thief? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28 it is, let the thief no longer steal, but do honest work with his hands. Why? So that he may give to those who are in need. It's a wonderful little verse, that one, isn't it? Because it's such a reversal. See, he uses his hand to take. Now he's got to work with his hands, in honesty, in order to give. <laughs> it's all about turning everything on its head. Ephesians 4.28, that verse in itself captures so much of Christian ethics and morality and understanding of how to live. And so the wealthy, you see, they had to give. You know, we, Australia is not a republic, is it? What is it? It's a... It's a commonwealth. We are living the commonwealth of Australia. Have you ever thought about that word, Commonwealth. <laughs> It actually means for the general good, for the common wealth. It's a very nice word. Uh, I'm not entering into whether we should be a republic or a monarchy, but I hope we never cease to be a commonwealth. <laughs> I hope we are always concerned for the common wealth of our nation and not just the private wealth of the individuals within it. It's a very Christian concept to talk of the common wealth. You might remember that it was only one point in which British history wasn't a monarchy and that was under the Christian Cromwell who had a commonwealth. It's a very Christian concept, a commonwealth. Because my money has been given by God to me, entrusted by God to me, to use for the commonwealth. <laughs> the commonwealth of my family and the commonwealth of my community and especially the commonwealth of the kingdom of God in the spread of the gospel. Sit down and think about your money, brothers. Plan it out. Don't, don't give because someone shoved something under your nose. Work out how to be able to give in which directions for the best good of the money that can be used. And there's lots of good proposals as to how to give it, and not the least is mentioned in here in our scripture, scriptures in schools. Make sure that we use our money for the kingdom of God. But in getting our money, we do it by work, which is found in creation. Because when God created us, he created us to fill the earth, that's family life, and to subdue the earth, that's our work. Well, we've filled the world. Chinese have particularly done their part. 
the Indians are heading that direction. South Americans are really good at it too, and the Africans are everywhere. So we Anglos, we're just sitting back and letting the others do that bit. And we're subduing the earth, which, well, of course, we're not. We're ripping it off left, right and centre as much as we can. See, the world wasn't perfect when it was made. It was good, very good. It fulfilled God's purposes, but it needs subduing. So God put us in chapter 2, verse 15, into the garden to work it and to keep it, to look after his world, to subdue his world. But that was a social responsibility because God saw that it was not good for a man to be alone and so he created a helper for him. The animals couldn't be the helper because they couldn't fill the world with him, but she could because in her was born the men who would be able to help him with the gardening. Her relationship was in the filling rather than the subduing. The subduing was in the work of every generation that comes because men are born in the image of their fathers, into the business of their fathers. So in Genesis 2.18, it's not good for man to be alone, so he creates this helper for him to whom he is united. And it's fascinating, you see, it talks, it, it, it's not just about Adam and Eve, it's about us. For it finishes, remember, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and unites to his... Well, there is no father and mother for Adam to leave. You know, we'll all know Adam when we get to heaven because he's the one without the belly button. <laughs> yeah? I mean, everybody else, they, they have one, but he's, he's original. Right? And so, sorry, for some of you now, you're going to spend the rest of this talk just trying to understand that. So let me explain it. <laughs> there are verbs and there are... No, no, that's a... Here, here is, you see... The, the character of our world. But the work is now cursed with man's sin. So by sweat of his brow, he's going to work the garden. The garden is now hostile to him. Uh, these are Genesis 1, 2 and 3. In case you don't know what I'm talking about, you don't know that part of the Bible, read Genesis 1, 2 and 3. That's the judgment that falls. It falls on her in relationship with her husband and in relationship to childbearing for which she's been born. But it falls on him in his work and the hardship with which he has to now work and how difficult and unresponsive the garden is to him. She brings the saviour into the world but it turned out not to be the saviour when it was Cain and Abel. And so we're constantly looking for the saviour to come who is going to crush the serpent and that of course is the Lord Jesus who finally comes. And the man goes on working with difficulty in this world. But he is very able. And so in Genesis 11, you find all mankind together building a tower. Genesis 11, there's an extraordinary statement of God in Genesis 11. For when God comes down and sees the tower, he says in Genesis 11:6, Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. That is because God has created humanity with the ability to rule the world. <laughs> and frankly, brothers, humanity is really clever. <laughs> Combined humanity, we have done some extraordinary things. Landing on the moon. <laughs> the, the ingenuity that was necessary to pull that stunt off. 
That was only a stunt. But the ingenuity that was involved in it is incredible, really. It's fantastic. Uh, penicillin. Wonderful stuff. Extraordinary. The diseases that we've eradicated. My brother spent, not my brother Peter, I have another brother, I had another brother, he died last year. My, my, my older brother, he spent six months in, in hospital with polio. Don't have polio today, do you? You don't meet Australians who spent six months in hospital with polio, do you? He was one of the lucky ones, he lived. At the same time, I spent four months in hospital with diphtheria. Hands up those who have ever had diphtheria. There's one of us in this room, two of us in this room. <laughs> you just don't have that. It's just gone, isn't it? The ingenuity of our medical scientists is, is fantastic. There is nothing that humans cannot do. So God stops us being able to work as one family and divides us by our languages so we don't understand each other and puts us in hostility towards each other because we can only do it together and all the kinds of millennial hopes that people have have all got to do with unity let's create Esperanto if we all speak Esperanto we'll speak one language and understand each other have we got any fluent Esperanto speakers here no it didn't get off the ground that one but it's still around the Esperanto Society is found in Redfern I walk past it every time I get off Redfern station it still exists but yeah, no one does it well, why don't we have the United Nations? If we all unite, we'll be able to stop the war in somewhere. Korea, well, put a fence across there and tell them not to shoot each other anymore. Or we'll stop the war in Syria or in uh, Iraq or in... I mean, the United Nations doesn't work, does it? Any more than the League of Nations did. It's all right. I know what unites humanity. Red and games. The Olympics. We all join together and hold hands in the Olympics, don't we? We're all happy young people, once every four years for ten days, if we're lucky. Um, got to get rid of the drug cheats, you know, we don't like them. And some of the corruption of the officials in making money out of it and the advertisers and... and it's all a figment of imagination, isn't it, that humans can never get together again because we are cut flowers. And our cultures are all expressions of the Tower of Babel. Brilliant and wrong-headed, <laughs> simultaneously. And so what about your work, my work? Well, we're part of that brilliant and totally muddled-headed <laughs> activity. See, the work is not our meaning in life. The creator is who gives us meaning in life, not our work. And he tells us to rest one day in seven because there's more to us than work. There's rest. Just like there's more to him than creation. He rests one day in seven and we're to participate in his rest. So work is not the meaning of life. Indeed, our meaning of life finds fulfilment in Christ Jesus for, and our relationship to him. For he is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. And so our work... Well, we have eternity in our hearts. It's just we don't understand it. Come with me to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Worth turning up, because I'm going to read two sections out of it. Ecclesiastes. 
it comes after Proverbs. Open your Bible, you'll hit Psalms, turn to the right. And from there you should hit Proverbs and you should hit Ecclesiastes. And chapter 3, those of you who are old enough are now tempted to sing the Seeker song. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to... There's a time for this and there's a time for that, but you notice they're the opposites. That is, there's a time to weep and there's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and there's a time to dance. They're the opposites. That is, mourning is not right and dancing's not right, except in the right time. So to be dancing at the funeral and to be mourning at the wedding, you've got the wrong time. The activities are neither right nor wrong. It depends all on timing. So therefore, there is a meaning to life outside the activities called timeliness. That, that's where the meaning is. And he explains it down in verse 15, in verse 11. God has made everything beautiful in its time. And he's put eternity into the hearts of into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. You see, I have eternity in my heart. That means I can understand that there is a meaning outside of the present events. I know that there's more to life than just this life. There's more to work than just this work. I know that it's the meaning. I just don't know what the meaning is. I'm conscious that life has a purpose, a meaning, and a value, that there's morality, there's justice, there's truth. I just don't know what any of them are. That's describing our present world. And we won't know what they are without God's word speaking to us because we're created to seek and to search after God, but not to find him. And so in our work, we'll look back across. He's searching for the meaning and the purpose in chapter 2. The book is about his search. And in chapter 2, verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wiser or fool? Yet he will be the master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair above over all the toil of my labours under the sun, because... Sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who didn't toil for it at all. There's also vanity and great evil. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart doesn't rest. This also is vanity. One of my friends was a project manager in Darling Harbour and he worked for a decade building the buildings of Darling Harbour that have just all been pulled down and destroyed. Ten years of my life building buildings that are no longer in existence. But that, that's all of work, brothers and sisters, isn't it? <laughs> I go out and plant the field, water the field, harvest the field, the next year plant the field, water the field, harvest <laughs> never actually stays. There's nothing that will stay. The, the, the great statues in Palmyra have just been pulled down and destroyed by IS. They stood there for 2,000 years, but no more. My friends didn't last 10 years. And so what is the meaning of my work and my career and my job? I mean, this is what I fill my life with. 
What's it about? I like reading Mr Gittins in the newspaper. Uh, he comes from Salvation Army background and he's quite funny because he can't stop his Christian value system coming out, even as he describes his, the non-Christian world. keeps popping out. Read, read Ross Gittins. It's really funny to watch a poor man who, is, I understand, left Christianity, still can't leave Christianity. You know, he, he, it, it just haunts him the whole time. He says he, economics is a silly kind of discipline, really, because what we're aiming for is to making people happy. Oh, that's silly. And, but we never study happiness. So here's some books on happiness and what makes people happy about their work. And so he's got three kinds of work, he says. There's jobs, careers, hobbies that people get paid for. And he says people who do jobs are basically happy. People who do hobbies are really, really happy. To be paid for your hobby is fantastic. You know, I'm a footballer and they pay me. I play the guitar and they pay me not to play. And so <laughs> these people are happy. The career people, miserable. They're the unhappy ones. Now, what's the difference between jobs, careers? and Because we're pushing everybody into careers. Jobs is where you just go and do the job that the boss wants you to do and he pays you for the job that you've done and you go home and you spend the money that he gives you because he's giving you the money to do a job. Whatever the boss wants you to do, you go and do, whether it's dig the hole there or dig the hole there. You don't care where the hole's dug, you just dig where the boss tells you to dig the hole because you're doing the job. They're happy. The hobby people, well, they, they would do it whether they were paid or not. You know, they'd play football whether they're paid or not. You're paying them to do the thing they like doing. They are really happy. The career people, they're the people who try to find the meaning in life in their work. They're the people who try and have a trajectory as they head upwards, climbing the ladder. They're the people who want to have a job which has social significance and meaning and value in life. They're the ones who think that what they're doing is making a contribution to build the kingdom of this world. They're the ones who try and find their fulfilment and self-satisfaction in their career. And they are always miserable. They're always on the road when they first become doctors, lawyers, dentists. They're all excited about it. But within a little while, they learn how many bureaucratic forms they have to fill out. And, and as they climb up, they suddenly find people behind them pushing them to get off and out of the way. And it's, it's all misery. And it doesn't actually solve the world's problems. We want to solve the health problems of the world. Don't be a doctor. Be a plumber. Be a sewerage worker. What this world needs is clean water and good sewerage, and we'll be a lot healthier. Heart surgeons, they only look after old, fat, middle-aged white men. <laughs> Plumbers, sewerage workers, they look after the community for health. But you see, there's not much glamour in being a sewerage worker, is there? You know, oh, I'm so thrilled my daughter's marrying a sewerage worker. <laughs> you can hear it, can't you? And so what we do is we Christianise careerism. Because the Holy Spirit, in case you didn't know, you're very middle class. Aspirational. Spirit. Aspiration. You see? Same word. And so, that is a joke. <laughs> On the edge of blasphemy, which I'm about to explain to you is not. Because the Holy Spirit keeps leading people into being careerists. I never have the people saying to me, the Holy Spirit led me to be a garbage collector. The Holy Spirit led me to be a truck driver. The Holy Spirit led me to a prison guard. 
I have the Holy Spirit leading me to be a lawyer, leading me to be a dentist, leading me to be an engineer, leading me to be a politician. The Holy Spirit only leads people upwards on the social scale of materialistic paganism. I suspect that that is the Spirit, but it's not the Holy <laughs> Spirit who is like that. Nothing wrong with being a lawyer, a doctor, a dentist. It's perfectly all right, but just don't go on about that somehow you're making a significant contribution to civilization more than the bus driver, more than the printer, more than the carpenter. Work is work. A job is a job. And all Christian men should be doing it because it's right and proper. And it's good. And it's what our job, we're to protect, we're to provide for our families, we're to protect our community, we're to do good for people, we're to make the wealth that we can give away to others. A job is a good thing, and work is a good thing. It's just not the meaning of life. And it's not the way to find fulfilment and satisfaction in life. It's not what's significant about you. What's significant about you is you've been made in the image of God. What's significant about you is the Lord Jesus Christ has died for you. What's significant for you is that you can love God and love your fellow neighbour. They're the things of significance. The, the fact that you drive a truck. Well, good, I'm glad you do. And I hope you get paid properly and that you don't drive too fast and not too long. Right? I mean, there's good things, you see, but... That's not what makes you significant. But you see, when we describe ourselves, we describe ourselves in terms of our job. I'm a truck driver. You know? I'm a lawyer. I'm a... No, I'm a human. I don't know if you've met one of those before. <laughs> I'm a Christian. I'm one of God's people. That's my self-identity. Not what job I do. That's not my self-identity. Come with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Here you've got a group of Christians who aren't working. Paul's not pleased with them. They should be working. We don't know why they're not working. Some people suggest they don't work because they think the Lord's going to return. There's not much point. I mean, if you knew he's going to return this afternoon, would you go and water the roses? You know? so, but we don't know that's not the reason they're not working. But Paul has to get them back to work. And he uses all the arguments at his disposal to get them back to work. And these gives us, therefore, the reason and the rationale for work. Verse 6, chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accordance with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labour we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, to earn their own living. See the reasons for work? so that you won't burden other people, so that you've got food to eat, so that you look after your family. It's, it's a basic thing. Don't give it high moral principles, ideals and the rest of it. It's, these are the ideals. This is what work is about. And everybody should be doing it. No one should be idle. Now, some of us can't work for various reasons. we handicapped or something like that, and wonderful of our society that we look after people with handicaps. But we all should be working. For that's what jobs in the New Testament are about. It's not the meaning of life. Rest is the meaning of life in a sense. But it's to do honest work with your hands 
so that you can help people in need, so that you can provide for yourself and for your family. And whatever your job you do, do work heartily as unto the Lord is a right thing. They're the reasons for work. But there is another kind of work, and it's called the work of the Lord. And it's found in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, right at the end when it's talking of the resurrection chapter. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. And that work of the Lord is spelled out for us in the next chapter, chapter 16, verse 10. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. There is a work of the Lord which is different to all other work. For the work of the Lord is the building of the kingdom of God. Through the ministry of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, as people take it out into the world. And that can be a reason, it's the only reason I know, why men can set aside from making tents, from set aside from digging ditches, set aside from any other work, so that they may continue the work of the ministry of the gospel elsewhere. So our brother who is teaching scripture in school is doing the work of the Lord when he's in school teaching the scriptures to year seven. That is the work of the Lord for which we set him aside from having to do other gainful employment so that he can do that work which is the work not of this world but of the work of the world to come. There's our overlap of the two ages happens in the ministry of the gospel for which we give generously to others that they may do that work of the Lord. And it's important that we see that priority and value it and not despise, a great temptation to do this, despise those who do it. Let no one despise him. Because there's a tendency to say, well, you know, it's a pushy, cushy life, isn't it? Being one of those people who, I wouldn't mind actually if I could have some time to go and, you mustn't despise those who are engaged in this activity. We've got to encourage them and help them is what Paul is saying. Because this is not just any day, any boss's work. This is the work of the Lord. And in Australia, we have enormous privilege of that tradition of people being set aside for the preaching of the gospel. But there are men in India who are only eating three days a week so that they won't burden their, part, their, 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 their churches because the church can only afford to pay them part-time. That should not be so when we have rich Christians in our country to have people doing the work of the Lord like that under those privations in order to get the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ out. Because we are to be committed to the world mission of the Lord Jesus Christ as our top priority. And so in our work, one of the functions and factors of our work is to work in such a way as to be able to get our brothers to be teaching scripture in school or to be preaching the gospel in Kenya or to be in South America or to be even going to the Victorians. <laughs> Whatever dark place you think is necessary to go to. I wouldn't say that south of the river because I'd be outnumbered, but you get what I mean. Wherever. That's a priority for what we're doing and need to be doing because that is the work of the Lord because ultimately the man of God in the image of God who does the work of bringing all the world into submission is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So Psalm 8 reflects on Genesis 1, but come with me to Hebrews. Last passage, and then there's one verse. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, verse 5. Hebrews 2, verse 5. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honour, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection under him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he may taste death for everyone. Man comes to his full crowning glory in the Lord Jesus Christ's death for sins and resurrection to eternal life. That is where we will be seen as we were created to be. But it's in the work of the Lord that takes place. So I go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 13 and encourage you to be men. But if you're going to be men, you've got to be like Jesus. Who didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For then you become most human. We pray. Then we're going to do something and then we're going to have a quick Q&A. We'll do Q&A with the slips of paper but I'm also happy to take some from the floor as well for those who can't write but who can think. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and his death and resurrection. We thank you for your creation of us as men, the responsibilities that you've given to us in our lives. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us joy in the work that we do and in the money that we have, that we may ever put Jesus first and others as before ourselves. So that, Father in our lives we may bring glory to him in our work and we pray father that you would help us to so value the work of the lord that we will see our ministries at church our sunday school teaching our youth group leading our home bible study groups that we'll see the work of the lord in priority over our labors of this world and that we would use the labors of this world to fulfill our obligations and responsibilities to others and to be generous as well and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.